Thanks for listening to the CISO Diaries podcast. We're Leah. And I'm Sia. And we started this podcast with the intent to give CISOs and cybersecurity professionals a place to be their authentic selves. These are the unedited stories told of how they got into cybersecurity, their real struggles that they persevered through, their personal anecdotes that make them tick, and the leadership advice based on their own experiences. And we want to especially spotlight those that are contributing and giving back to the community apart from their day jobs. This podcast is for everyone, especially if you're a leader or someone aspiring to leadership. Who knows? You may find yourself working with these awesome leaders. So join us on your favorite podcast player. And please don't forget to subscribe, follow, like, and comment and engage in the conversation. And now let's get to know our CISO on our latest diary entry. Oh, yeah. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to our show today. I'm Leah, and I'm here with my co-host, Sia. Hello, hello. A quick shout out to our sponsor today, Cyber Future Foundation. They're an organization of executive leaders, and they're focused on taking actions across a number of initiatives in cyber for a safer and more trusted world. And on today's discussion, we are going to deter a little bit from our usual we have the honor to be with our guest who has been spending much of his career advising Fortune 500 companies and government agencies on threat research and SOC operations and incident response. So we're going to talk a little bit about some current threats and hear his perspective. Um, we pre-record, so this is December 2021, and as we head into 2022 here, but really thrilled to have with us today, John Benbenek. John, hello. Hello, and thank you for having me. Of course. And so you recently joined Netenrich as their principal threat hunter, but you've also, you're also the president and chief forensic examiner for Bambinet Consulting Firm, founder of Bambinet Labs, and you're an incident handler at the SANS Internet Storm Center. Quite a bit there, huh? That's correct. Yeah. Never a dull moment. <laughs> I know. So just kind of back us all up for a minute. You know, I, I think a lot of people know you. I knew you from when I was working with Fidelis. They were a partner of mine and you were there. I wish we had crossed paths sooner than we did just a year ago, but um, it's been great to get to know you so far. Talk to us a little bit though about how did you even get into cybersecurity? Take us back a bit. I got into cybersecurity by cheating at video games when I was a kid. <laughs> This <laughs> is what it came down to. It's like the most I like role-playing games, but the most annoying thing about role-playing games is just having to grind for hours to save up money or whatever to buy, you know, whatever sword or whatever. So I'd go into hex editors and try to figure out how I could just give myself levels or experience or money or whatever. So I could actually play the game I wanted to. Uh so there's a lot of just learning. I mean, you know, cheating in video games is kind of the gateway drug to malware reverse engineering, really. But I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old at the time. Uh, you know, I had a little side thing when I was 10 selling pirated software at the public library. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it seemed like a good thing at the time. So yeah, instead of with a trench coat, you know, selling drugs at the library, I was selling Corel WordPerfect, you know, and then, you know, my Parents were concerned I was becoming a degenerate and turns out, well, no, I, that was actually building a fairly lucrative career in cybersecurity that nobody knew would exist in the 80s and 90s. Can I just emphasize this? It started out with video games because gaming right now is such a huge industry. Mm -hmm. Can you just say one more time and say, yes, you can play video games and have a wonderful career in cybersecurity? 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely you can, right? Uh, so I suppose it depends on the type of video games and what you're doing, right? I mean, if you're just a pathological griefer on Fortnite, eh, you know, that might uh, prepare you for a career in upper management. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, a lot of games are problem solving, uh, building puzzles, working with systems, and eventually... Right. That's just technology of putting pieces together or finding the gaps in pieces that exist in a system. So, John, you that that's actually what, probably one of the more interesting segues in terms of how you got into the career. And before really cybersecurity was, um, you know, as known as it is today as the field. That That's awesome, though. I, I like the, the background there. So a little bit, you know, just given your background and the, you know, many things you've been involved in over the years and with your um, intelligence on threats. Um, Want to talk a little bit about some of the recent ones and just get your perspective and you know for education and awareness and um, it, you know the big one now is Log4j right or Logforge who knows how we'll be pronouncing it in 2022 that vulnerability that was disclosed recently by Apache and I think this one hit it rather had more relevance to many more of us not just in cybersecurity I know it did for me I think about my home network and what I've done to check for any issues with AT&T, Meraki, Ubiquity, et cetera. And then, you know, the it hit Minecraft servers and my niece and nephew play Minecraft. So just taking a bit of a pause there, your thoughts, if you could share. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it seems like every, I don't know, other year or so, give or take, we find some vulnerability and some off the beaten path thing that's built into everything. That nobody ever really thinks about, right? And and log4j or the logging library in Java, nobody really thinks about, right? We're like logging events and stuff like that, but most people think of system logs as things to ignore unless it's a problem. You know, everything's got a web server now, uh, and a lot of things run Java, so it's just kind of built by default into everything. Uh, and that's the biggest problem with this vulnerability isn't so much the people who are running web servers in terms of what we conventionally think of web servers, but embedded devices or home access points that are running Apache, networking devices that have admin interfaces. Over uh, over to my right is a printer that I'm sure is running Apache and may in fact have Java. I'm, I'm not worried about anybody exploiting that. If they're on my wireless network, then okay. But it's, but it's kind of ugly in the same way that WannaCry was, that SMB is just built into everything in Windows. And once you get there, you can do a whole lot of badness with it. In this case, we're a little bit lucky that the initial exploitation was crypto miners and other uh, lower severity things, though there is some nation state stuff going on there that's given us a little bit of a head start. And usually people's web servers are distinct from their organizational network. So there's a little bit of a gap uh, to prevent lateral movement, but it was a whole lot of work that a lot of people had to do, uh, and not just in IT, but like I said, manufacturers of devices who just put Apache and Java into everything and then never had a real plan to update the stuff. You know, I, I'm thinking back to SolarWinds now, right? And thankfully, um, FireEye or Mandiant, right? They they did alert on that. Mm-hmm. And then I look at the response and the impact and, and outcome, right? From that to now. And I say that because and this could just be me personally, so I'm curious on if you see the same thing or differently. But I feel there was a more um, concerted effort from the community that is almost more processes seem to be in place or more support was out there, um, more education, not the you know blow, blowing smoke as much. 
And I would say just more collaboration, I think, and to help. I saw this time, you know, and I know CISA's uh, definitely noting how serious this is, but also they issued the emergency directive that required many of the agencies to either patch or mitigate any of the vulnerable software within a week. But have you also seen that collaboration and kind of more effort around the community and and help and support that compared to some of the previous big ones? I think the difference is like what organizations had to do here was relatively straightforward. So we all kind of knew how to advise people fairly quickly. So in SolarWinds, I advised a lot of organizations but the big question people had is like, oh, I've got solar winds. Am I impacted? And initially, it's I don't know. Um, uh, I ended up having to create one of the first data sets that helped enumerate all of that by just digging into DNS telemetry that was six, seven months old and figuring out uh, at least how to extract that so other people could take it the final mile. In this case, it's it's straightforward, right? You've got to update this library in Java, go forth. And there's a lot of other things that that really could come into play that helps in this one uh, with web servers, right? You get web application firewalls, but in a supply chain uh, attack, which is what SolarWinds was, we really don't have any good tools to deal with that. It's if somebody uses a supply chain compromise to knock over lots of stuff. I mean, we're just all along for the ride. We've seen that with NotPetya a few years ago. Uh, with uh, this Ukrainian tax uh, software that you had to use if you had a Ukrainian presence. Um, you know, we've seen a variety of that where you, um, like I said, it's a, in a supply chain, there's a key partner that knocks everybody over. So there's still collaboration, but like the day one advice or the hour one advice is people are like, I don't know, we're still trying to figure it out. So it's a little bit different there uh, in terms of solar winds. And, and frankly, I'm going to guess just because I'm a cynic, we're probably going to see something major uh, you know, after this, but before Christmas, because we usually get a Christmas present from St. Petersburg, um, you yeah. know, every year it seems uh, because they don't like us celebrating the holidays. No doubt. And yeah, see ya. Well, no, what I was going to say is like, <laughs> it's a gift that keeps on giving, right? Like, so can I ask you guys the whole solar winds, and I had talked about this in another podcast in the past, but are we just subject to the vulnerabilities, the way solar winds is deployed? Can't we, as if I'm a business owner or enterprise space, do additional steps to protect, even though you have to have, you have to open up that line, right? For solar winds to talk to each other. Are we just, for lack of a better term, are we kind of screwed or can we just add like 15 layers of defense? The key to dealing with that isn't so much, hey, what can I put in place to detect if somebody undermines solar wind source code? You know, you're probably not going to get that. You're never going to get source code auditing. Right? Everybody uses Microsoft you're not going to get anywhere near Microsoft source code. But once somebody gets that initial foothold, they do stuff, right? You know, that was the the vulnerable version of Orion was step one. They did other things beyond that. Uh, So there are detection techniques that you can build and figure out. Um, And certainly when it comes to like malicious use of PowerShell, which is very common in ransomware and nation state stuff, uh, there's some defined ways to get there uh, looking at uh, what we call XDR detection rules of looking at what's going on in the network and the host or cloud and seeing if we can find patterns in multiple different areas to indicate a compromise. So it's really about building detection to detect any any form, any part of the attack lifecycle. 
and the initial access is really kind of step one for the attacker. They've got to do lots of other things that we still can uh, still can detect. I mean, so my understanding was like you know attacks like the solar winds and that uh, recently was um, uh, is it colonial that it was colonial sophisticated, but it wasn't like it was sophisticated, but it wasn't new. It wasn't like they were doing something totally cutting edge and like oh this is a brand new threat attack you know uh, tool or process. Clearly, I'm technical. Um, yeah. Can you help me understand that? Because I've heard so many people say, well, it's not rocket science what they did, but they did it very well in the complexity. What does that mean, complexity? I don't think I fully understand what that means. Um, when it comes to ransomware, you started, when we started seeing it in 2013, they'd just take over one computer, right? Then there'd be a lock screen and that was that. Uh, what ransomware operators do now is they try to take down an entire organization. So they're at the keyboard, they're doing research. They've got their initial access. Okay, what else can I get access to? How can I move to the domain controller? How can I get domain admin? You know, do I have permissions to use PowerShell everywhere? So they their path from initial access to kicking over an organization varies a little bit every time. Um, and there's a lot of other steps and research involved. So it's sophisticated in a sense. Um, but there's still some defenses that, that could have been had. Um, and really what it comes down to is, is kind of business continuity planning is how do businesses operate when their, in, their IT infrastructure is partially down, which is a basic step that we forget about because nobody really likes talking about backups or any of this dry stuff. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you're colonial pipeline, you have one mission and that's to get you know, fuel from point A to point B. And you need a way to do that if uh, I believe the impacted system was actually their measurement systems. The OT of actually moving uh, the fluid from point A to point B worked. It's just they couldn't measure how much they were sending for purposes of billing. Um, so, uh, you know, that could have been planned around uh, or something imposed upon all parties. And for whatever reason, nobody really thought about it until you're in it. Right. And that's a bad time to, uh, to try to figure out how the solution of a problem is when things are already on fire. So speaking on ransomware, wasn't it Microsoft confirmed a new family, right? Was it, it Consari? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but but yeah, something like that. Yeah. And then, you know, what you were mentioning around business continuity, but then also, you know, what what can be done and not waiting till so much after the fact. Right. And, and, you know, granted, we, we all know not everyone has the budgets or has gotten the, you know, approvals and, you know, has that all perfect and together in, in a cybersecurity role lead leadership role. But, you know, when it comes to the, you know, go the talent, the tools, the skills, the training, working more with the community, being more collaborative, private public sector, all of it, you know, and you know, with you being in very much a consultant advisory role too, what is it that you try to talk people through? And, you know, because unfortunately we know there's a lot of folks out there that, you know, it's an after the fact and then, oh, got to think of this, right? But we can't necessarily blame them either. But what, where do you kind of start when you look all across all of it and how, or how do you best guide them on key things, right? Um, largely it depends on the type of organizations and I'll start with SMBs like, and, and by us, I mean, actually small business, you know, where nobody really caters to them. 
And, you know, one of my friends, also a client is a healthcare broker, right? Helps companies do insurance benefits for their employees and told them, like, you know, what do you actually need to operate? Right. It was like, well, basically email and, and we go to a website and enter in census information. I was like, okay. Do you have to keep that census information after you deliver the quotes to your customers? No. Then delete that. Right. Is, is start removing dependencies on technology that don't really need to exist in the first place. Um, because not everything does need to be electronic and not every, not all data needs to be kept forever. Uh, nobody's Facebook or Google here where we're trying to data mine everything uh, and just minimize any single point of failure, which is one way to make things resilient is, is have multiple ways of doing the same thing. So if one fails, you can keep doing the things you do. Um, hospitals are good at this because they have to be right. If the power is out, you know, there's several different redundancies because hospitals can't, you know, can't close. I mean, they can to an extent, but they need to be always functional. And some of that may be, hey, you know what? Non-elect or elective surgeries, we're just not doing those. As we saw in the pandemic, right? We needed to preserve the hospital staff for uh, people who had COVID in a bad way. Um, those same principles apply to, to any organization is, you know, uh, minimizing single points of failure, minimizing um, the impact of a single outage, uh, and figuring out what you need to do to keep the business running and figure out multiple ways of doing that. There's lots of other things people want to do, right? Hospitals do lots of other stuff besides surgery, but some of that stuff can just wait if it has to. Uh, so, and that's really business speak. That's less technology. And then you focus your spending on that stuff, because if that stuff doesn't work, they have to, then you're really talking about real ransomware payouts or, or, or just being in a bad way. If you can figure out how to work around a ransomware incident, then you don't have to worry about figuring out how to get 2 million in Bitcoin on the, uh, you know, in a time sensitive uh, manner. Okay, so Leah, you had asked a question, and I'd like both of you guys' feedback on this. That collaboration between public and private sector Yes, hospitals, you know, highly regulated, right? And, and it's mission critical. We're looking at our utilities, for example, right? The whole water poisoning situation. Um, I guess my question is, is, and maybe, John, this harkens to your background in politics. How do you help both businesses and, you know, public and private sector understand the languages and their needs and requirements are very similar, maybe not necessarily same words, but how do you educate you guys? Because I feel like, okay, I'm going I'm to make fun of you, John. I feel like politicians don't get it. I think they like the bombastic, you know, mm. you know, media words out the ransomware, ooh, the oogie boogie man, but they don't understand basics. Oh, yeah. So help me understand you too, because you guys deal with this all the time. And in my head, I'm thinking, I think businesses should freaking get it, okay? You've got IT department, especially in the enterprise space. Maybe the mid-tier SMB space maybe needs a little bit more education, but government to me, uh, anything that's highly regulated, I feel like lags in, in, in so many ways. So walk me off the ledge, you two. I'm, I'm not loving what I feel that our public sector side understands the importance of uh, what's going on. Yeah, I mean, you were saying you feel like your politicians don't get it. Well, I'll be more direct. They don't, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's anybody elected to office is it comes from any walk of life, right? And you know, I can think of maybe a small single digit number of information security professionals who have ever held a government office, and I'm including local office in that. 
we're all too busy, right, is what it comes down to, even to do something like a school board. Um, and the skill sets are very different, and that's fine. The decision makers don't need to be experts, right? They just need to know who the experts are and be able to weigh the, these needs against other needs, right? And that's any any leadership role at all, right? In, in, in a company, in a not-for-profit, in government, anywhere, it's, you know, I've got all of these things competing for limited resources. How do I decide what to do? Um, and that's its own unique skill set, and that's fine. Um, but one of the biggest problems in cybersecurity and technology generally is that we never like talking in, other, in terms other than our own jargon. Like cybersecurity professionals love talking about cybersecurity in technical terms, and that's great. But you're never going to be able to get in a board meeting and talk about that, right? Or and have them understand it because boards are mostly accountants or lawyers or or well CPAs or you know uh, other 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 roles, right? And the reality is, is most businesses aren't in the business of security. Even security vendors aren't in the business of cybersecurity. They're in the business of selling the product. So. Um, which is also kind of the problem between public and private sector communicating, whereas the public sector is like, this is the greater good of society. And the private sector is like, hey, business ethics is I've got to do what's best for my shareholders. You know, the greater good of society be damned. And we could skip past the moral, uh, the sociological things of that. That's just the way it is today. Um, so, you know, if you want to convince somebody or, uh, get somebody to do something. You've got to speak their own language. So if you're right. talking, if you're talking to business, right? How does this impact the business? Every business leader understands risk. And if you're talking to the the public sector, in terms, you can talk about national security risk or economic impact or impact to the broader society. If you're talking to political leaders, in terms of public opinion, right, and and what people are concerned about and what can be done balancing the pantheon of special interests that get involved in the legislative process. So I love, oh, no, go ahead, Leah. Yeah. I like that a lot because in I'm seeing this or hearing it more often, right. But you put it in the context of talk about the risk, right. Cause everyone understands risk, but it's mm-hmm. going to be different to each person and organization. And I like the, you know, obviously talking in the same link or figuring out how to talk so that there's the understanding between both um, key. And, you know, I keep hearing how many folks like yourself and others, you have your story and it changes per audience, right? So that they, you can understand and almost like we're almost constantly selling cybersecurity, but we also have to have them understand and and meet halfway, right? To be productive. You know, I I think I've seen it at least in any ways that the cybersecurity infrastructure agency is trying to do a much better job of bringing that collaboration better together with public and private. I know they want more involvement from private sector, um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And you made some good points, but I guess, do you have, have you, do you have your story, right? It's so to speak that you've got for your audiences and how important is that when you think about if you're, let's say you're, you know, anyone who wants to go into being a CISO, for example, right? What would you tell them in terms of the story aspect? Well, anybody who wants to go into being a CISO, I would say find a breached organization because anybody who's just been breached for like the next two years, it's great to be a CISO. <laughs> Before or after that window, less so, you know, but I mean, ultimately, you know, the, the, the CISO is that bridge, right? Their, their primary role is to be bilingual or trilingual. 
right? You know, they got to be able to speak in board language and they got to be, be able to speak in the language of the other executives to get them to do anything. You know, risk is a common common language between both of those groups. But, you know, there's, you know, your engineering department, they want to ship product, right? And security is going to say they can't do certain things, right? You've got to, you've got to speak in terms that they understand in terms of, uh, I mean, if you're engineering medical devices, right? You talk about risk and patient outcomes, uh, you know, if you're talking about uh, financial institutions, you can talk about fraud. Uh, that's their primary risk is losing the money just flying out the door, even though uh, in many cases that's insured. So, uh, I mean, a CISO is really just a glorified white collar translator. An interesting okay. perspective. <laughs> well, no, I love that. I love that you said that because it is, well, I don't know if I can't, I don't know. What, what are the PC terms these days? I guess, I don't know, but, but you, you nailed it. You have to have the business language. You have to be able to, to speak in a term or in a way that whoever your audience is, which is again, executive level can understand and without belittling them. Have you ever encountered these types of board type conversations where you're trying to educate them and they just kind of look at you like either a, they think they know it because they've heard of the word IP address and B where you've been able to just give them that moment of like light bulb has it how, does it happen often <laughs> yeah yeah no yeah i mean i i don't know if i speak to a lot of boards but i i, I speak to a lot of politicians who go, oh well, this cybersecurity thing's so important what should we do right and you know depending on which level of government i'm talking about right it's yeah we need to kick the crap out of china and russia because that problem is not a technology problem that's a diplomacy international relations problem you know uh and we can't solve that and we're never going to solve that Right. That's a job for you and the CIA and the State Department to solve. Um, it's just a new tactic of the same old thing talked about in the art of war and Sun Tzu. So, um, I mean, once you kind of break it down in terms of, uh, of something they care about and what the actual critical components you need from them, then things start making more sense. You know, and I, I mean, there was some great reporting like oh, this week, this week in terms of one we're recording on business email compromise, which people think of romance scams and stealing title fraud money. But it all goes to uh, African organized crime a group called the Black Axe that use all that money to fund human trafficking and murder and all of the very bad things that uh, that go along that what you would expect in African organized crime. And now people get it right. It's like, oh. So a romance scam of, oh, well, you shouldn't have given somebody your bank account information or sent Bitcoin over Tinder. Okay. No, you're funding, you know, now this is a funding source for human trafficking and some people are lonely and they're going to keep making mistakes. So are we going to tolerate the human trafficking? Of course we're not, right? And it calibrates people's understanding because now, oh, I see the real problem here. And it's not, none of these problems are truly technical. They're human problems, right? People have been stealing and thieving and killing since the beginning of our documented human history. Now we could just do it electronically over greater distance, you know? So all of this stuff has been with us in the beginning. It'll be with us up until the moment an asteroid comes and annihilates the human species from planet Earth. Is that how you think we're all going to go down? (laughs) I am a big supporter of Sweet Meteor of Death. (laughs) <laughs> oh, don't look, don't make me put my ancient alien hat on because I'm going to, I'm going to go back into my alien war overlords are going to make that decision for us. So John, okay. So I, I'd like that you mentioned this and I guess I am really intrigued. So politicians, do they have a mentality of like, is security still considered like an insurance thing where you're like paying in advance in case something happens? Are they hesitant to spend the money until they understand the business value around that? I mean, again, politically, as well as 
in the enterprise space, or are we getting much more looser around, you know, investing into technologies or programs to increase our security? We only care until, you know, something hits the fan. We're better about investing in people and skills. Sorry. Yes, that too, Leah. Absolutely. Great point. Yeah. I mean, part of Biden's infrastructure plan included a lot of cybersecurity spending. The number, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. And some of that was to education. I think there's the money going to to start putting cybersecurity programs in the, the community college level, because it is practically absurd that you need to get a bachelor's in CS and then a master's in cybersecurity, and then spend a year getting you know a couple of security certifications, and then you're ready for your level one SOC job. Right. That's just dumb. Um, you know, thank you, by the way. Yeah, no, I, it, it was it was it was actually something I was working on at the community college level until the pandemic hit. And the community college I was working on had like a 30 or 40 percent enrollment drop. And well, that ended their appetite for doing new things. Um, so um, cybersecurity and to an extent, I.T. are really trades. They're not professions. Right now, we th- th- there's a place for highly educated people in the industry, but I don't need a level one SOC analyst to to have 180 year hours of of college credit. Right, I need them how to how to think about the problem, how to use tools, and do some basic troubleshooting. Right, um, I mean these are the people handling pa- handling password resets. It's just not that hard, um, you know. So putting a hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars of education in front of them for a job that spends that pays, I don't know, what's entry level average salary of cybersecurity, 70, 80 grand. It, you'll pay it you're back. Lucky. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you'll pay it back eventually, but why start there? Right. Um uh it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I mean they're spending in Biden's plan for that. I think a lot of it isn't isn't that people people uh, policymakers know that we need to do something. Nobody really knows what we need to do. Um, and like spending money on tools and uh, I mean, tools aren't going to solve the problem because, again, it's a human nature problem. Right. And if we're really talking like ransomware is a geopolitical one, uh, APT and espionage, it's a geopolitical one. BEC is a geopolitical one. Go through the list. Right. These are all human problems manifesting itself in technology. So throwing a, a next a next next gen. EDR at it isn't going to solve it because there's big money in it and they'll adapt. Um, so, I mean, there's an appetite to do something. I just don't know that everybody has, anybody really has their arms around all of the somethings that need to be do need to be done. And some of those somethings are really hard. How do you get Russia to play ball on not letting ransomware operators operate freely within their jurisdiction? Well, I mean, that's a diplomatic problem and you got to go find something that Russia cares about or Russia will, face an, an equivalent amount of pain and get an agreement. And it's hard work, but we pay a lot of money for a State Department to figure out hard problems. I mean, John, Russia doesn't benefit if they stop their people from hacking us and perhaps giving them additional information. So it's kind of like you're asking them to police themselves when they benefit from the data that they would receive. So yeah. I just think it's silly. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I mean, it's silly. Yeah, it's international relations. You got to find something they care about more. It's either you got to give them a carrot or a stick. And I don't know if I care which one you use. Um, You know, we're not going to be launching predator drones for ransomware operators. Probably not. Um, You know, so you've you've got to just do the work of diplomacy. And I said, I don't 
I don't have a desk of Russian analysts to tell me that what Russia cares about more or not. All I can do is my best to detect ransomware and interdict it. But in the end, the people that pay for my services aren't, you know, are the people who can afford it, right? And and we're in demand people and the products cost money. Uh, there's a lot of people, not-for-profits, K-12 schools go through the list where they're just not entitled uh, or they just don't have the resources, right? Or, or I'm, you know, and that even goes true for forensics. One of my hobby projects is doing pro bono forensic works for public defenders uh, at, in state locations, right? So um, they're never going to get expert witnesses in anything, right? Not, not, not to pay. Uh, so the only way there's any equivalent of vetting information is that somebody just donates time. Thank you for having that as a hobby and donating your time, by the way. Thank yeah. you. I didn't know what you, so those, so those expert witnesses, they're usually paid in court systems. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. I just learned Lots something new today outside the security talk that you guys were doing earlier. I learned something new today. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, my my hourly bill rate for expert witness work in federal courts is higher than lawyers. That wow, that's I so, did not yeah. know that. Yeah, no, I, it, it's just a funny personal story. I come from a family of lawyers and judges, right, and petty criminals. So obviously, this is the industry for me. <laughs> you know, well, you but, talked about your early childhood, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, right. I, you know, it's, it's just the family, it's the family trade. Um, you know, but the lawyers are like, you should have gone to law school. You should have gone to law school. And eventually it's like, okay, what's your hourly rate? Here's my hourly rate. And then they never stop. They never talk to me about law school again. Cause I mean, I know enough of law. I can, I can make an argument, right. I just grew up in a family of lawyers. That's all they did. Um, so, um, but I mean, that's kind of the imbalance of the criminal, the, the legal system generally, right. Is, you know, the, you know, who has the most resources tends to win. Well, if you can hire your own experts and you can afford that money and the other side can't, well, okay. you know, we've had incidents. I, I want to say something I've used when I taught digital forensics is the FBI used to use hair evidence in crime scenes. And it just turned out the evidence uh, that that scientific technique was just junk, but it was never challenged. Right. Um, so, I mean, a bunch of cases got overturned. Right. Eventually, justice got served except for the people who spent time in jail. I mean, you don't, you don't get time back. You might get some money, but science only works when it's challenged. And, you know, in the criminal, in the, in the legal system, the only way to challenge it is to hire your own experts. And if you don't got money, no experts, right? And that's just as true in cybersecurity. There's, nobody really knows how this stuff works, not lawyers, not judges, and they shouldn't, right? Their expertise. If I have, if I'm, you know, facing a felony charge, I want my criminal defense lawyer to be an expert in criminal law. Right. Um, you know, that's who I'm hiring. I, and I want, I want somebody to make the prosecutor miserable. You know, if they need experts, go hire out experts. But if you don't got money, then you know, it's, you know, hopefully you can win on the law and not on the evidence. All right. So what I'm my takeaway here, Leah. I don't know if you're noticing it. I already made a notation. Uh, we need John on our side as a good friend because um, we're not that would ever go to court, but uh, he'll give us some f- free love. Good or sign. maybe we Deanna's could pay sign. him in, in whiskey or something. But um, yeah, no, God, I, I can see even more so now, right? Considering what you shared with us today, why you're just so damn good at what you do in, in, in this industry, by the way. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, the Chinese and Russians don't get me started, but 
I mean, it's not like it's been going on, you know, it's been going on for a while. And I know nobody likes to be told, I told you so. So hopefully we can get to a point of where people at least start listening, right? And so we can be more proactive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John, there, a lot of great insights you shared with us today in education. Um, thank you for that. But also, you know, it, it's it's a lot, as you said, and, you know, you shared early on things will probably get worse before Christmas. And sadly, that's very well true. But what do you do this more personal question, but just to prevent burnout. I mean, what are some things that you try to do, you know, whether it's personally, whatever, or that you'd recommend to your you know, team members so that you don't get to that point? I mean, you, you got to take time for yourself. I mean, at a certain point you get older enough, you just got to start eating healthy, healthier and, and reducing the caffeine and alcohol. Um, you know, I know I, I didn't like it when it happened to me too. Easier you know, said than done. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, you know, it's, it's one way or the other, your body's going to issue a corrective instruction. It's just whether it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a small voice or a very loud one, you know, but uh, I mean, Christmas is always a dumpster fire in it, you know, it's a means take time off in January. Right. And, and that's really more for, for, for leadership, right. Is, um, you know, by and large, we're working in effectively a first responder kind of role. When things are on fire, well, you know, I'm just not coming home at 5 p.m. You know, but that means you got to take time off when you get it uh, and do things to take care of yourself. I mean, a few months ago, I went to Aruba because I could and just sat on a beach for a few days huh. uh, drinking, drinking, uh, you know, the, the little free beach cocktails they give you at all inclusives. Right. You know, whatever, whatever, you know, gets gets you off, uh, gets you off your mind off of work, um, you know, find something outside of the workplace, even if it's kind of professionally tied. That, that's fine. Right. If, if you want to do capture the flags at conferences or whatever, find something to, to enjoy life a little bit, because this this dumpster fire is going to keep burning long after we're dead. Um, one way or the other, you know, it may not be technology. I mean, like I said, it's, it's a human problem. People ask, why can't you sell cybersecurity? Because nobody's figured out how to make human beings not be douchebags to each other. I can't solve that problem. I don't have a firewall bag, a firewall for douchebag. I'm sorry. (laughs) You you, you left us with way too many quotable snippets today. And by the way, I thought it's a great business idea. Can we make, create an AI maybe to, to do a douchebag sniffer? I don't know. Yeah. That's good. Um, well, before Sia wraps this up and before I my mind sails away to Aruba with that, you know, wow, that does sound lovely. Can you give us your gut instincts for 2022? It'll suck harder at greater scale. Fair. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair. So I mean, you're a hopefully 2020 and 2021 has prepared us how to manage it better, maybe, right? Yeah, manage ourselves I, I, better. Unlimited job security, you know. So I mean, there's that. Everybody, everybody listening to this is is in cybersecurity. So unless you truly blew up production in a catastrophic way, we'll we'll be working until we retire if we're allowed to. Yeah, no, I've always argued back in my little IT recruiting days in the 90. Oh my gosh. I'll say 2000 just to make myself feel better. But yeah, security, as long as we've got these connected devices and it's getting so much more dependent nowadays, I encourage everybody, all my nieces, nephews, anybody and everyone, whatever your path to entry, 
technology, security. Again, there's the ecosystem around it. So for me, I was in sales, right? There are tons of opportunities out there. And with that, there is no defined path to leadership within cybersecurity. And that's the other thing that with CISO Diaries that we try to encourage is there is no set path, right? You can't, it's not like medical school. And if you want to be an oncologist, there's a set path to do it. And that's what's so exciting hearing you, John. Now your detours with politics, I mean, that's, you're just crazy, but that's okay. We will we'll support you nonetheless, but, <laughs> but uh, no, really appreciate you. Any last ways, if those that want to reach out or learn more about you, John, how can they go about that? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Bambanak, uh, LinkedIn. Um, I, I don't think my father's on LinkedIn. He's John F. Bambanak, but you, you can find me uh, under the, the chief architect of the cyber panopticon uh, is my tagline because I just have no sense of reverence whatsoever. That's and, why we love you. Yeah. Are you, are you John second or the third or what? I'm John C. <laughs> so it's not uh, just a different middle initial. So okay. that doesn't I know, mean but... you're a second. Yeah. Uh, I want to say my, yeah, both of my grandfathers were named John. Oh. I don't know if we go that far up the family tree, but at this point, like family gatherings, right. It's, it's, Oh, there's, there's John Patrick and Johnny and, and they call me John Christian. So. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, we get your first and middle name. I feel like that you're getting scolded. I, know. I don't know if you're aware you're getting scolded. Well, no, it didn't say the last. It, it, it's I only get scolded when you use all three, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to use the whole. Yeah, and only from my mother, right? You know, anybody <laughs> else, anybody else will be looking at you like, yeah, my mother, I'm still afraid of. Yeah. <laughs> well, is she Irish or she, Italian? Yes. Yeah. No, she's, 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 she's 100% Irish and has the right hook to prove it. Yep. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I, I want to, again, just thank you for being here with us today again today. This was really, really a fascinating conversation, John, and um, learned a lot more about you that was very, very intriguing. So thank you so much for being here with us today. It's thank a you. great way to end the week. Yeah, great. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend as well. Great. And thank you. And I guess that will wrap it up for another episode and diary entry of the CISO Diaries. Bye.